This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Charles Prowse, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. I've been very um, keen to talk with you since I um, somebody passed me your book on The Voice to Parliament. I've been keen to have a chat. I've been keen for people to have a listen and for people to try and understand what is happening. Um, but let me introduce you first. And if I get any of these pronunciations wrong, Charles, please correct me. Okay. Charles is a Nick and a man from the Kimberley, Western Australia, with over 20 years' experience in Indigenous affairs across Australia. He holds a master's in public administration from Harvard University. Show off. <laughs> and, a bachelor, <laughs> and a Bachelor of Science from the University of Western Australia. He has worked on Indigenous projects with state and federal governments and in the not-for-profit and private sectors and currently co-owns Nikibar Consulting, mm. specialising in supplier diversity and Indigenous program implementation. From 2015 to 22, Charles was the first Indigenous person on the board of the Benevolent Society and is chair of the Aurora Education Foundation. He's written a book on the voice to parliament, which explores what a yes vote in the voice to parliament referendum will mean and why it is so important for our nation. I'm so keen to talk about this because yet again, like so many issues, it's become politicised and there is so much misinformation about it. Mm. There is. There is a lot and that's why I wanted to, when I was offered to write this book, um, uh, I was both scared but um, not the work that I would have to do, but, you know, that's what you have to do, right, because there is misinformation. So what do they say? Bad things happen when good people do nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all good. We all just have to step up to the plate, and this is my stepping up to the plate. And mm-hmm. I just thought, you know, the misinformation out there, and there's a lot of it now, it seems to be growing. So I tackled what I could in the context of a of this booklet, and it's just only relatively, it's a short booklet. You could read it in an hour, an hour and a half. Um, my dad read, read it and he doesn't read too often. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a short book, so I had to think about what I said, what I would say, and I wonder what misinformation I wanted to tackle. So that's what the booklet's about. I encourage people to say it is only short, but I'm I'm very happy with what I wrote and I'm getting pretty good feedback, I must say, which I'm surprised it's my first one, and but I'm very honoured and, and I'm I'm grateful I wrote it to cut through mm. the information. So my view, um, and for those that li- listen to the podcast, they know I'm, I'm very left-leaning and a lot of people like don't like that, so they don't listen to the podcast, which is fine. But my view is 
why are white people asked to have an opinion about this? Why? Huh. Why is that? Is that a naive question, Charles, or is it? Because it's, it's an injustice um, in, in many ways, and I don't blame a lot of people, the voters and the readers out there. I mean, we are a democracy, but the basic facts are we are 3% of the population, and yeah, that that's one thing. And, and in order to win this referendum, we need, you know, a double majority. And sadly, even if every First Nations person in Australia voted yes, it would not be anywhere near enough. But our voice is important. That's what we're arguing for. And people want to know what an Aboriginal, what a black fella thinks. And I'm that's why I was asked, and that's what I'm telling you. So if you're wanting to know what a black fella thinks, I'm going to tell you what this black fella yeah. thinks. Okay. But, the, you know, 230 years, I mean, we were here obviously before um, colonisation and then it happened and it was devastating. It continues to be devastating for us. But now our numbers have switched. You know, people say, oh, why is it, why do we have to look at, you know, giving 3% of the population this special place? Well, well, I'm sorry, we were here first and we've actually suffered more than 230 years of pain, of torture. You know, people talk about even now, well, what will they lose in, if they vote for the voice? Well, I do get angry. We we, we lost our kids. Mm. You, know, you did. taking the kids away. Mm. Think about being murdered. And think recently. Taking your land away and then thinking about what you might lose. That's what makes me angry. Yeah. But I won't dwell on that. But we do have to bring people with us. And I, I feel most Australians are good at heart, but maybe they don't know some things. And I hope this book helps them to know some things that they thought they knew, but, you know, maybe they need to know a bit more. Mm. Do you know, I always think, and I don't know if you know this, Charles, but our listeners will, my parents are Lebanese, they immigrated in the 50s Mm. to Australia and we suffered, you know, in terms of racism, not our children weren't taken away from us and our homes weren't taken away from us, but, you know, there was a a level of not fitting in, right? Yeah. And, you know, I grew up in Glebe and there was a, a quite a, a prominent Indigenous population there as well. So I went to school with Aboriginal children who had way less than what immigrants had as well. But what I, what I gather, even from well-meaning people, and I hope I don't do this, but there is, it's like being a liberal left, like there is an expectation that we have to be better than everything else. And when I hear people talk about First Nations communities, um, First Nations people, the bar seems to be a lot higher than it is for white people. Like very recently I heard somebody say, well, you know, some communities, some Indigenous communities do really well and some don't, you know. And I just thought, well, duh. Look at us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some why white we people can... do really well and some white people don't, you know. <laughs> don't. Don't, right? And then yeah. and then again, somebody said, because the, you know, the, the voice is a topic of conversation amongst my friends, which I do appreciate and I think that it should be discussed. But uh, I mean, I personally don't think that we should be voting. But anyway, um, that's that's another matter. But you know, I heard somebody say, "Oh yes," and and you know, I, he, the, the guys in education and a group of First Nations people sat at the table. Oh, and do you know they fought amongst themselves? 
Well, this is the thing, right? Because white people don't fight, Charles. Well, this is the thing, right? You, 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 you had a, you, you mentioned that like you don't think you should be voting, and obviously voting for the positive, but this is the very issue. You do have to vote because we have been disadvantaged from day dot when Captain Cook came, and then the first fleet came after that. So what's happened as a result, and people have to, I know people, some people say get over it, but it's not that simple. 230 years of dispossession, of torture, of rape, of pillage, right? So what that has meant is across the country that has happened for 230 years. So you now have a system entrenched of disadvantage across the country. So all of the states learnt that. All Australians learnt that. I mean, we didn't get recognised till 67. So we are now a group of people nationwide that has had the system up against us in the most horrendous way. We are the most, the stats say, you know, we're the most incarcerated people per population on the planet. Yeah. I mean, the Uluru statement says that we, you know, it's true, we are not an inanely, you know, violent or um, criminal people, and yet we have all of our family or so much of our family in prisons. I think the system when you've got national two-something, two almost two and a half centuries of um, racist against us in, you know, embedded into the system, That's everyone thinks we're the same and everyone thinks that we're bad and everyone thinks, you know, Aboriginal people, you know, can't achieve but some can. We don't, we're not seen as a group of, of, of individuals now. We're, we're all tarred with this rush that the white man has given to us since he came here, you know, and there are lots of people, which is great, like you, who are, you know, recognise that injustice but you're still taught across the board, yeah, whether you're in yeah. Perth or whether you're in Broome or whether you're in Hobart, that black people, Aboriginal people, are not worth it in for so many reasons. So, you know, the other thing, I went to the multicultural launch for the Yes campaign yesterday in Murdoch, and so there are lots of multicultural people there, mm-hmm. lots, and they talked mm-hmm. about their journey. And someone mm-hmm. said to me, a non-Indigenous person, a friend, said to me, well, they've come through pain, you've come through pain, your parents, and you've come to Australia and you've made good and all of that, which is awesome. But we didn't come from anywhere. Mm-hmm. We've just had 230 years of pain. And, and you had I, so much taken away. Yeah, and I, I think if people say, well, how come you can't, like, why don't you just do what, like, migrants have done and come here and get a job? Well, we've been trying that for 200-something years. So, and yeah. unless you want us to leave to go to Lebanon, to make a good start there and do the reverse, which we're not going to do because this is our country. So we've been invited to 230 years. So we have a, migrants might know a little bit of what we've gone through, but they don't have 200 years of oppression. And they don't have their children being born underweight. Mm. They don't have their grandmothers and their great-grandmothers and great-grandfathers being oppressed mm. and what that's meant in terms of mm. health in terms of your spirit, your, we, we call it our lian, you know, our spirit, make them feel good. We've we've experienced so much, and people talk about intergenerational trauma. It really is real. It's real. Like, mm-hmm. And I talk about that in the book, you know, is that we've got to deal with 
a lot and we, I take nothing away and we love and welcome particularly new migrants because, you know, the ones that came here 200 and something years ago haven't been very nice to us in many and ways. They, yeah, <laughs> and they don't call themselves migrants anymore. No. They call no, themselves so, <laughs> Australian. Uh, the rest of Australia does have to know and really appreciate what it means. So if you think about, like, your grandparents coming here and facing a challenge, yes, absolutely. Multiply mm. that by seven generations. Mm. But also, you know, uh, I think I read this somewhere recently and you'll be able, you'll know that the right year, but kids were stolen from their families, they were stolen from their mothers, they were mm. stolen from their fathers until very recently, Charles. Oh, a living memory. I mean, and there's different versions of being stolen. There's there's also the versions of not being stolen but having to hide. My family had to protect you know, very, very protective. You know, kids were taken to their aunts and uncles, other people, or even non-Indigenous families that were white so that they, who were trusted, right, so that the, the police couldn't couldn't take them. So if you watch, if I don't know if you've ever seen it, I would encourage people to watch um, Rabbit Proof Fence. I have seen it, yeah. And that was up for a few Oscars and stuff. That's living memory. Mm-hmm. Those women... I think some of them are alive. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at what people did then, like the policeman, the, you know, whether they'd be the superintendent and what, and you look at their actions and how that they conducted themselves, you go, how could you even think that, right? How could you do that? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if in 30 years' time or even 20 years' time, we look back and we go, what were we thinking? What well, it's an thinking. It's an atrocity. Yeah, it is an atrocity. I mean, you look at the marriage equality, and we only had that yeah. five, five years, seven years ago. Some people would look back and go, "What were we thinking?" Even seven. Mm. Why? What was this? Is an issue? And if we can get people to like really shift their mental barriers and challenge some of the very simple notions. Uh, to appreciate as a human being what justice is, maybe we can get some quantum shifts in this country. But uh, we've been so entrenched for 230 years now, it's very difficult for a lot of people, I get it, to kind of move their perceptions, which I hope is what the book does. And I did that, I think, um, someone told me around, I talk about the Stolen Generations Report, I talk about the Bringing Them Home, and I talk about ASIC, and Neighbours, very well-educated, well-travelled people of the world who've been around, they're, they're not young, well, they're not old, but they're not young, and um, said, oh, I didn't know that about ATSIC. Oh, I didn't realise that about the Bringing Them Home report or this deaths in custody. And so people are continuing to learn new stuff and they go, that makes so sense. I just feel, a lot of them feel embarrassed, to be honest, that they didn't know. Look, that's fine, but now they do. Mm. Oh, look, and, you know, I'm learning every day. I learn every (laughs) day from speaking to people like you, Charles. I want to just explain how I see the voice, right, Mm. for those listening and correct me if I'm wrong. But from from the information that I've gathered, from the reading that I've done, because I think a lot of people don't understand it. So, Which is great, by the way, that you've done reading, you gathered information. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's how I kind of form an opinion usually. But anyway, so we've always had Aboriginal councils. 
We've had them over the years, right? Mm. Yet they've been aligned to politics. And so one government can come in and you say, okay, well, that's not working anymore. I'll put in a new council. And those councils, as I understand them, were advisors to that particular government, right? Mm. And were at the whim of that particular government. However, in changing the constitution and recognising a voice, that then becomes non-politicised and that council is there forever. Exactly. Is that right? Exactly. And when you say they're at the whim of that government, you're right. And the reason that they are at the whim of that government is because the government has the power to change them. The government has the power to expand them, you know, reduce them, Sack them. Sack them, you yeah. know. Um, it's like um, when, you know, when I we were living at home, you know, when you're a kid and you do something, your dad goes, my, my dad said this, I know how, it's my house, my rules, and you had to follow them, right? I still use that. <laughs> yeah, my house, my rules. You go, fair enough, you pay for the electricity, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, your rules, <laughs> you feed me. Yeah. You know, I moved, left home <laughs> for all the right reasons. <laughs> Got my own house. He came and visited and wanted to turn the telly around to watch the TV show. I said, Dad, I was watching that because I want to watch something. I said, Dad, my house, my rules. You know, and that's how it is, right? You know, it's all respectful. But at the moment, this is the government's house and the government's rules and particularly who is in charge. So whether it's John Howard or whether it's Kevin Rudd or Julia Gillard or Tony Abbott's, their house, their rules. We're just players in them. This way, we want to say, uh, no, 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 this is a building, I'm a tenant, you're a tenant, we don't get more power than you, you don't get more power than us, and now I can say what I like. Within reason, you know, you, you still have to, everyone has to, you know, get along, but no, they can't kick us out, they can't kick us out, my dad can't kick us out, Scott Morrison couldn't kick us out, or if he was in power again, you know, whether it's Anthony Albanese, and I think this is the other thing, this is about the future, right? So we're not mm. talking about today. Mm. We actually, we're not even talking about you and me, Cheryl. Mm. We're talking about our grandkids. We're talking about grandkids, grandkids. So anyone who has a problem with the past, which is true, people do have pain and they do have problems with the past and they do have perception, I'm not going to deny it. That is true. The challenge is to look to the future so I would ask people to say, what do you think your grandkids want? Mm. Because we will go, we will go. Politicians will go. Even politicians who are Indigenous today will go. People say, you've got Aboriginal people in Parliament. Well, they represent their electorates and they will go. Mm. We will need to look at something that stands the test of time, not for ourselves, but for the future, for this nation. And that's why referendums are such big issues. And this is where people, the little person, you, me, we do have power in this big change of, of how our nation is looking into the future. We have power with our individual vote. It's a power and a responsibility as a citizen to use that power. This is where you, our power now overrides all of the politicians and that's why some of them are scared because we'll take we're, we're changing the nature of their power potentially for the future as a collective, you know, well into the future. 
And some of these politicians, I think they're, they're, they're worried about their power. Well, this is why they use us as political footballs so that they can stay in power and they can win. I don't know mm. what, what they want to win. I want to win for the country. I want to win for our kids. I want to win for the future. I think they want to win for themselves. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I've, and again, you know, we all live in silos, so maybe it's just my silo, but I've noticed that young people, mm. a lot of the young people I know, are really bigger thinkers than we were. Like mm. race doesn't come into it, gender doesn't come into it. They don't really, nothing scares them about difference. Mm. I've noticed no, that. Is taught, racism is taught. I mean, you see little kids play with each other. They don't look at the colour of their skin. They help each other when someone falls down. We seem to, as adults, learn all of that stuff and then put it on all the brakes. Because I really do. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And so if we're looking to the future, that's what our kids want. People just Mm -hmm. want to live harmoniously with each other. One of the things I often think about is Lebanon and how war-torn it is, right, and Mm -hmm. how over, I mean, I I describe it as one of the, um, what do I say, it's the best house on the worst street, Mm a country. You know, if you look at look at it geographically. Anyway, mm. but mm. in the times that I visited, right, all my cousins, and I've got close cousins, like a lot of my mother's brothers and sisters are all still there, all they want to do is live a normal life. Like, you know, recently, very recently, where you had the full-on attack on Gaza again, <laughs> I mean, let's, this isn't a podcast about what's happening to Palestinians, genocide. No, but it's anyway, terrible. Yeah. It's ge- yeah. But there's one of my cousins having a birthday party for her seven-year-old. Mm. And it dawned on me that all people want to do is just live their simple life. Yeah, yeah. And we make all it of us. complicated. All of us, yeah. Uh, you know, the weekends, for example, we all want to do the same things. I've been... Yeah. I see on a Sunday in, you know, in America, you walk going past and people are in the park having a barbecue. That's what we do on a Sunday. Yeah. You know, um, go in Derby, in a lot of places, go fishing on the weekend. There's a lot of Aboriginal people go fishing on the weekend, getting yeah. their cars, just, just like, you know, Rex Hunt and all the TV shows, they're doing the same thing. Yeah. Go okay, trying to take their kids to school. And for those that they say, oh, you know, some of them aren't. They're doing this. They're on the dole. Well, that's not all of us, by the way. And by but, the way, a lot of non-Indigenous people are on the dole and doing. Oh, that's things. another thing I hear about a lot. It's like what? 
I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean that that we're not held up against each other, but First Nations people are? Anyway, Charles, with this podcast, we um, it's called Stories Behind the Story, and it's how you came to tell your story. So I want to know a little bit about your life, where you grew up, how it is you ended up at Harvard. (laughs) Well, I just told people it was all just like one stumble after another. No, it wasn't. Um, Where did you grow up? Start way back. Derby in Western Australia, in the Kimberley, and it's 200, for those who don't know, 220 kilometres north of Broome. So most most people know where Broome is. Yes. So, um, yeah, we're classified as remote Australia. Uh, It's anywhere between three and 5,000 people. Um, It's one of those Aussie towns, and it's quite green. It's on the coast, but it's got mangroves and muddy water. We don't have the wonderful beach that Broome does. but We've got lots of fish. Lots of rivers. Well, I'm a river person. So dad is Nigana and they call them the muddy water people. The Fitzroy River's Aboriginal name is Mudawara. And um, barramundi, crabs, jilgies, prawns, you know, if you want to go camping, see the stars and, you know, do all of that kind of outdoor stuff, you know, four by four, that derby is one of the places to be. Big, big, big um, barramundi and fish. I've got three brothers and a sister, and they've all got kids, so I've got quite a few grannies. Half the town is Aboriginal, you know, school with lots of my cousins. So, uh, And that's the other thing is that my family experience is not much different from many multicultural families. We have big families, mm-hmm. you know, the nanas, and the, we've got lots of nanas and lots of um, grandfathers, lots of aunties, indirect and direct, lots of uncles. And so we have all of that. And that's what I grew up with. I made cakes. I was a cake maker and I'm a chemical. Off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I made cakes and um, then dad got angry once because, you know, dad goes, well, that's great, but you can't eat cake all your life, Charles. So I made a curry, I think, which was a mistake because then I had to make more food later on for the family. So I'm a bit of a cook. Um, well, we have that in common. I started cooking for my family. So I've got four sisters and a brother, my mother, and I started helping her in the kitchen when I was You're nine. You're the opposite to me, yeah. Yeah, sure. when yeah. I was nine. And then I was cooking the family dinner by the time I was 12 and I haven't yes. stopped cooking. Yes, we are the same then, Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I love it. I love it as well. But um, even with this book, I was trying to do one cake a week, right, and put up onto my, um, what's his name, my Instagram. I think I've got four because I'm, I'm on I'm in WA. I've got to go back and make a cake when I go back to Sydney and post that. But that's right. all right. I'm gonna you can't always you. have Life can't be always, like, hard, right? It's just no. too much. Otherwise you go mad. Well, do you know, for me, the most, I mean, I only started baking sweets about five or six years ago. I don't know why. I was always such a savory person. And the only dessert I ever made was cream caramel. Oh, I know why. I bought a KitchenAid, right? And then I got buyer's remorse because I wasn't using it enough. Next minute. Yeah. And then I, (laughs) and then I thought, you know what? I've got to start baking. And I've never looked back. Yeah. I will swap recipes after this. Yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry. Okay. But, um, I so I school. I was pretty good at school. I was head boy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're a smarty. Uh, yeah, I was a smarty, but I was everyone's friend and everyone's related, which makes it easy. Uh, um, but I had to leave school year eleven and twelve because it was by then only by correspondence, and I'm not very good at all of that. So my year one teacher. Um, and her hubby, we're in Perth here, and um, 
said, look, does he want to come stay with us? There's a high school down the road because otherwise I don't, I don't think I would have made it. So I went and stayed with them because my year one teacher and well, my aunt is a, is a teacher in a small town. Everyone becomes friends. So we were family friends. I went to year 11 in, in Perth. You know, even my year nine, my teacher then, when I wrote one of those essays at the beginning of the year, they want to assess you, like what you did over summer kind of essay. And she says to me, Charles, you're really good at English. Why is it? And she looked at me sideways and said, oh, like, I don't know what I was meant to say, like, ooga booger or something. But I said, well, that's because I had a good year nine teacher, which I did in Derby. So yeah. I thought she thought she was surprised that an Aboriginal person could write. And I got good grades. Went to UWA, long story short, I ended up doing a GIS degree, a geographic information systems degree, mapping, okay. think Apple Maps, Google Maps, and that start to come back full circle now because I'm actually working with Apple Maps, which is great, getting place names onto um, the iPhone. It's just amazing how life comes full circle. And I, I got a cadetship with Aboriginal Affairs. I worked in Aboriginal sites, mapping Aboriginal sites in WA, I went around WA, I was entrenched in Indigenous affairs. I have been all my life. I moved to Melbourne with a nothing but a suitcase and got a job there, worked with the Aboriginal community in, in Victoria. I went back to the Kimberley and worked with the Land Council and doing land management. And I was helpful, well, oh, hopefully I was helpful, um, getting the Caring for Country Sea Ranger Turtle and Dugong project up. And now those Sea Rangers, I think there's about 3,000 across the country. That was 20 years ago. Wow. And I suppose just, you know, cutting all of that a little bit short, I've just continued the Indigenous Affairs, you know, in government, climbed the ladder merely by doing my work, mm. just doing the work. I, I didn't deliberately climb the ladder. You know, opportunities mm. came up. I applied, got them, and then asked, people asked me to be on boards. And so, you know, just stepping up, I suppose, each each time, being scared, um, having imposter syndrome each step of the way. but just I like, live with imposter syndrome. You know, just it's do hard. it. It's hard, yeah. It's hard, but then you figure out everyone's winging it. Like mm. everyone's winging it. So you're mm. not the only one. How did you get to Harvard and what was that like? Well, the Aurora Education Foundation, I was part of their convening committee and, look, they're amazing. Obviously now I'm the chair, but um, a wonderful man, Richard Poddock, who started that, you know, was getting trying to get more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to Ivy Leagues. You know, yeah. doing that helps lift us all so people can see us. You can't be what you can't see. And he said to me, and he was a Rhodes Scholar and Jewish, Jewish Rhodes Scholar, and he knew, you know, he'd come from his family experience, you know, of the Holocaust and everything that that brought. So he knew what disadvantage was. Yeah. So he used his efforts to help another group of people, us, get ourselves out. And his his approach for him was, okay, I've been to Oxford. I want to help other people, Indigenous people, get to these Ivy Leagues. And he worked really, really hard. And then he said to me, I was helping him start advising him for this Aurora, which is now set up this nonprofit. And he said, Charles, you should go overseas. And I said, oh, what? No. Just why not? You're smart. You know, I said, I'd look, you know, it was 20 years ago. And he said, no, there are processes and normal processes. I didn't do anything special. He just opened the door. He said, this is what you need to do. I actually had to get a tutor for all of the tests. 
I had to apply like everybody else. But what he did was show me which, you know, who to apply with, how to do it. I didn't know any of that. So I got in on merit. I mean, I actually did do a lot of work 18 months beforehand because you have to do these tests. And then I got into Harvard um, and I found this course. And it was it was wonderful because, you know, that imposter syndrome, you get to Harvard and there's other people who have imposter syndrome just like you who didn't think mm. it was possible, didn't know how to do it. Mm. Now I've got, I've got an amazing network of, of, of friends who do amazing things and they say I do amazing things, but we all do. We just do what we need mm. to do. People, I know, I know a guy from Lebanon, you know. I know people from South America trying to change the system. From Africa who who have, you know, $200,000 in a duffel bag pushed to them, say, can you please just ignore this kind of illegal activity? And they pushed back and said no and had to face, you know, serious consequences mm. of, of harm potentially. And so we're all just these people just trying to do our best for for our community. And that's what I saw at Harvard and, and got exposed to a, a lot of amazing things. It was busy. Someone said, you know, it's always busy there. Jesus could come and you'd be still, you, you wouldn't be available. There's other things to do. So busy. <laughs> but that's how I got to Harvard. And that is what I mean. Each step mm. was just, okay, a door opens, someone helps you, guides you through, take it. You can take it. Or don't take it. Mm. And that's how I've gotten to where I, I, I just took the opportunities. Mm. Mm. We're out of time, Charles. The book is called On the Voice to Parliament. I urge everybody just to, to read, to find out, to ask questions before you vote. That's what I do. That's my recommendation. What's yours? Yeah. Well, it's only an hour, hour and a half, and there's lots of, like, anecdotes in there, so it should be an easy read. Yeah. All my family read it and then, you know, they're not always readers, but um, I've very much enjoyed writing it. It almost broke me, but it's done now and I get to meet and talk to people such as yourself. So I'm happy. I, I urge people to have a read. Vote yes is really sweet. And talk to other people. Talk, talk, talk. Have a break. Talk some more. But you've got to talk. There's no, there's no point in just liking stuff. Repost stuff. Get it out there magnify the the message look some people don't want to talk some just talk to two people talk to 10 mm. people if you're good at it talk to two people but talk mm. don't be afraid and also too don't be afraid because this is just the first step it's just mm. part of the mix isn't it yeah. you know anyway charles prowse thank you so much i've enjoyed our chat so much thank you cheryl you've made it really easy i appreciate it If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.